Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. And uh, Kristen, one thing I love about doing this podcast with you is that we are constantly learning little factoids about ourselves that sometimes we have in common. Yeah. Despite the fact that you were homeschooled and I went to regular school. <laughs> hey, that doesn't make me that much different, Molly. I'm just saying, despite our different backgrounds. Despite me being a weirdo and you being normal, <laughs> there is common ground. There's common ground. And today I found just an enchanting thing that Kristen and I have in common, which is that we both had, when we were younger, the Princess Diana paper dolls. Yes. Wedding edition. Yes. My favorite dress on the Princess Diana wedding edition paper dolls was, of course, her enormous gaudy wedding dress and the bouquet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we were talking about our our Princess Diana paper dolls this morning because we're going to talk about wedding dresses. And in preparation, basically, I just sat on uh, Google and Googled pretty wedding dresses all morning long. Just Google image. Yeah, it's not a bad way to spend a morning. It's actually, that's not actually all the research I did, but it's very um, fitting that we talked about Princess Diana because a lot of our uh, conceptions of wedding dresses are due to the royal family. Yes. When we think about the traditionally, you know, white wedding dress, um, at least in my mind, before I started doing this research, Molly, I just assumed that brides wear white as the symbol of purity mm -hmm. and, you know, virgin bride, all of that stuff. But we actually have Queen Victoria to thank for um, just liking the color white and being a little bit of a trendsetter. When she um, was married in February of 1840, it's um, thought of as the marker of when women first really started wearing the white bridal gown. Yeah, at the time, I think the dress was considered fairly plain, mm -hmm. despite the fact that by all accounts, it, it was gigantic. But up until that day, if you were a royal, you were getting married in like um, silk, satin, fur, the most expensive velvet, everything had silver thread. I mean, it was very ornate. Um, I was reading that actually the brides had to get so dressed up because the men, the royal men that were getting married were, were so, you know, 
dapper and wearing all their finery that, mm-hmm. you know, brides had to work pretty hard to, like, keep up. Yeah. But, you know, the poor common people who were not royals just pretty much wore whatever color they wanted. Yeah, they have to wear their Sunday finest, maybe a special holiday dress or something. They didn't have money to go out and, and get some custom-made wedding gown. Particularly not a white one because, you know, who wears a white dress around other than attendees at the Puff Daddy white party. At least not after Labor Day, Molly. <laughs> True. Keep that in mind. So, I mean, before Queen Victoria, you would wear, you know, a gray wedding dress, blue wedding dress, pastels. There was no rule. And then Queen Victoria comes along and wears um, this white dress with orange blossom wreath headdress. Sounds really pretty. I like it. Yeah. But, Molly, the very first wedding gown, if we're talking about the, the history of wedding dresses goes back to 1406 with the marriage of Philippa, the daughter of Henry IV. And she was wearing one of those blinged out wedding gowns that you were talking about. She was covered in velvet and silk, satin, fur. I mean, it sounds a little overdone. It me, does. But uh, whatever, you know, it was 1406. I mean, if you're a princess, can really anything be overdone? I'd argue not. No, no. Um, but back then, blue, not white, was the symbol of purity, mm-hmm. and the bride and groom would actually wear a little band of blue um, somewhere on their bridal costumes, their wedding costumes, uh, to symbolize their their joint purity. And I like that idea that both the bride and the groom would wear some blue. Something in common. Yes. The symbolism of white in weddings goes back to the Greeks because Greek brides would wear white to symbolize joy. Mm-hmm. And then Roman brides would wear white to symbolize Hymen, the god of fertility. Oh. Another celebratory association with white. It didn't it didn't just have to do with uh with purity. Yeah, and I think back then they would just wear white to like parties. Mm-hmm. They were so happy. Yes. Like if you're wearing white, you're just saying you're a happy bride. Yeah. If you wear blue, you're saying a pure bride. Mm-hmm. But it's not like everyone right after Victoria set this trend of a big, white, poofy dress immediately could buy a white dress. Right. So as Kristen said, Victoria's wedding, a big landmark in wedding fashion. And one more Victoria factoid I want to throw out, courtesy of TLC. Uh, Queen Victoria was the first bride to have bridesmaids carry her train. And TLC points out that luckily all they had to carry was the train because her wedding cake weighed more than 300 pounds. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? What if that had set a trend and everyone had to have a 300-pound wedding cake? I wouldn't mind that. That's true. The cake is the best part. Yeah. That's why I go to weddings. But anyway, the cake didn't catch on, and neither did her dress right away. Mm -hmm. I mean, her her daughters got married like that, and the wealthy got married like that. But, you know, for the most part, people still had to get married with what they could afford to spend. Yeah, like you said, you can't, a lot of these women couldn't afford to go get some satin white dress handmade for this one day that they could never wear again. It still had to be something, some kind of dress that they could wear over and over again. And there was a tradition after that that uh, that brides could sometimes kind of ha- alter their their gown and, and wear it again for special occasions. Um, but it really isn't until uh, the late Victorian era where that kind of goes out of out of vogue and you really only wear your wedding gown on on your special day. Right. And a special day did count, I read, as meeting Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. She loved when people showed up in their white wedding dresses. It's really odd. Yeah. She wasn't vain at all. No. 
So anyway, let's keep going in the Victorian society. Um, in, if you're getting married in England, you know, in the late 1800s, you're getting married in a church, likely in the morning. There was this law that you couldn't get married in the afternoon. So you're wearing like a nice morning dress. That means like a high neckline, the long sleeve, something appropriate for a church. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, that people could get married in the afternoon that they would start altering dresses to make them look more evening gownish. Mm-hmm. And once they could alter them, you know, you could still pick any color. People were getting married in all sorts of colors, white included. Mm-hmm. In the United States, on the other hand, across the pond, as they say, um, white did catch on a little bit quicker. But it wasn't just for the bride. In Civil War era in the United States, both the bride and the bridesmaids wore white. Ah. An all-white wedding. Wow. Sounds like a major wedding faux pas. It does today, but as we're learning, white is not this cherished sacred color. No, it's just the symbol of joy. <laughs> so moving on in uh, the American history of uh, of wedding dresses, during the Depression, um, it's kind of interesting that this idea of wedding dress becomes more of a luxury item renamed the bridal gown. Yes, that's the first time we see that term used. Mm-hmm. And this is despite the fact that, as Kristen says, the depression's going on. No one has any money. And yet bridal gowns stayed very ornate and extravagant, despite the fact that in most other times during history, the the wedding gown fashion kind of follows the fashion of the day. I mean, Mm -hmm. you think about like a 70s wedding, you'd wear like, you know, a mini, just like you would wear to go shopping, wherever you wore your minis. Yeah, I mean, the, in, in, the, in the same way, uh, like flapper dresses oh, yeah. in the 20s would be also reflected in the style of the wedding dress. So those kind of silhouettes change with just general women's fashion. Um, one thing that I loved about uh, the history of uh, bridal gowns in the U.S. was during World War II, since uh, you'd have to marry soldiers on a short notice while they're on furlough and things like that, kind of these uh, quickly planned weddings, you had a more casual style um, of wedding gown come into vogue. And they had an excess of parachute silk yeah. from uh, from the war. And after World War II, when there was this just surge in weddings when all the, the GIs were coming home, you had a lot more women wearing gowns made out of parachute silk. Which I thought was so cool. That is cool. And it is the only time when you think about the other thing made out of parachute, parachute pants. Parachute pants. It's the only time parachutes have really been fashionable. Not wedding appropriate parachute pants. But think how fun like a parachute dress would be because you could like jump off a high thing and like your skirt would like float. I'm imagining your wedding right now, Molly, <laughs> and I want an invitation. Okay. Um, so anyway. Keep moving on. Now I can't focus because I'm thinking about my parachute dress. <laughs> Your extreme bungee jumping <laughs> wedding. Well, today, Molly, the uh, the average cost of a gown, parachute or not, $1,500. Oof. That's according to the Bridal Association of America. I mean, obviously, you can find cheaper gowns. You can go way more expensive than that. But $1,500 is the average. Is the average mark. And that's a lot, especially for a gown that we're only going to wear once because we have Queen Victoria to thank for now, uh, you know, us wearing white, which isn't exactly the best color to wear many times. And then this whole idea of the the wedding gown becoming this one time luxury good. And it's like, you know, there's this whole wedding industry built on the, built on the fact that it's your day to be a princess mm-hmm. and things like princess die. And this whole, you know, tradition from Queen Victoria do not help that conception. Basically, we're reading that women always kind of follow the royals of the day. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it would be kind of fun to talk about the wedding attire, typical wedding attire for 
other countries outside of the U.S. and England, because I think myself that uh, that China's got something going on with their wedding gowns. They typically wear red, bright red and yellow wedding gowns, which I love because that's their symbol of good luck. Right. And you get lots of intricate embroidery with a dragon and a phoenix. Mm-hmm. And this detail I also loved, um, you know, maybe you can't pick between like, Two dresses, you look great in both. In China, Chinese brides buy as many dresses as their budgets allow. It's a way to show wealth. Costume changes, not a bad idea. And then in Morocco, um, you will have a lot of yellow weddings to scare away the evil eye and green weddings for good luck. Which is odd. I mean, this is how, you know, things get convoluted. I was finding this poem about which colors you should wear for your wedding. Mm -hmm. And while in Morocco, these are good colors for a wedding, This poem that I'm going to read that's just become part of, like, bridal folklore says that these colors are actually wrong. Really? Are you ready for a little poetry reading? Please do. Yes. Married in white, you have chosen all right. Married in green, a shame to be seen. Married in red, you will wish yourself dead. Married in blue, you will always be true. Married in yellow, ashamed of your fellow. Married in black, you will wish yourself back. Married in pink, of you he'll think. Oh, so Pink Bride? So adorable. (laughs) Not bad. So, I mean, you know, you've got this one poem telling ladies not to wear their green and yellow and red, but if you go to these other countries, it's... It's perfectly fine. Well, and Molly, I was doing a little research on contemporary etiquette with uh, bridal gown colors, Mm -hmm. and you know what? What? We can now wear whatever color we want. Talk about choice. Yeah. I mean, you think you're just limited to white. Now you got the whole rainbow. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, if you think you, you need to, to wear white, you know, to symbolize your, your, your purity as a bride, you might, you might want to go with blue mm-hmm. because you're actually not going to get that right symbolism with white. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, so. maybe brides should start handing out like little pamphlets saying why they chose their dress. Color guides. Yeah. Like that. Maybe Could- in the invitation and then the guests could match. Their color to whatever symbol they would like to represent, <laughs> whether they would like to bring good luck or ward off an evil eye. That's nice. But, you know, now that we've basically proven that wedding dresses can mean anything you want, mm-hmm. let's talk about one more thing, which which actually has sort of a weird history. OK, the veil. Yes. The veil is really where we get the symbolism of bridal purity. Right, Molly? Yes. And it's also a symbol of protection. Ooh. Because I don't know if this actually happened, but there was this thinking that brides, once they put on their wedding dress, were going to be so beautiful that everyone was going to want to take them away and make them make them theirs forever. Yeah. And according to Snopes.com, veils were originally worn to shield the you know passersby from the bride's beauty or else she might she was at risk of being snatched away before she got to walk down the aisle. Interestingly to me, it's not just to protect the bride from other people. It's also to protect her from herself. Mm-hmm. Because I guess, um, you know, if you follow that train of thinking that if the bride sees herself in the mirror fully dressed for her wedding, she'll just be captivated and not make it to the church in time. So there's this superstition that you're not supposed to put on your full bridal costume uh, until the moment before the wedding. So if you're getting dressed in like, you know, the store trying on the bridal dress and whatnot, don't put on the dress and the veil together. Bad luck, apparently. Or else she might never leave the bridal gown superstore outlet. Of course not, because to your wedding. Because they've got those nice three-way mirrors. You'll just be stuck looking at mirrors all day. Sounds like uh, this whole idea of the quote-unquote bridezilla might go back a bit longer than we thought. Yeah, it's it's certainly not modern society's fault. No. Oh. <laughs> 
It's just off the hook for that one. It's just Queen Victoria. Yeah. And her 300 pound cake. Yeah. All right. So we answered our question. Why do brides wear white? Because of fashion. Because of fashion. Just like most things. Yeah. Royals. Um, we need another royal wedding, Kristen. Yes, we do. Maybe you can marry Prince William. There are any single royals out there? You know, I mean, you can, can always email us at momstuff@howstuffworks.com if you if you need a lady. Speaking of people who email us at momstuff@howstuffworks.com, yes, Molly, want to do a listener mail? Yes. Okay. It's not from any royals today that I know of. That's okay. We can we can take some commoner listener mail. <laughs> These people are anything but common, Kristen. Today, I want to read an email from Shannon about our online dating podcast. And she wrote that she found it interesting when we were discussing the habit of people seeing something distasteful about someone and just pretty much writing them off immediately. So she wrote that, you know, when she set up a profile, she was very specific about what she was looking for. She wanted someone who was older, already established in a job, maybe owned his own home, goal-oriented, and just really motivated. Mm-hmm. So then this guy comes along who's not any of those things. Uh, he had just filled out a college. He did later go back and get a degree. Um, he didn't have a job. He lived with his friends, and he was two and a half years younger than her. Does that meet any of her qualifications, Kristen? No, it didn't. None. But, so she wasn't interested, but she was intrigued because this guy knew that he didn't meet the qualifications and decided to try it anyway. Confidence. Um, confidence. Like they emailed back and forth for a few weeks, talked on the phone, then met, and guess what? What? A year and a half later, they were married. Uh, congratulations, Shannon. And we have gotten just tons of stories like that, these success stories of people who have met through online dating. Yeah. So keep them coming because they're very uh, inspirational. Yeah, so far we haven't gotten any horror stories that I remember, just just success stories. So if you want to send us a horror story, that would be funny to read too. Yeah. Uh, you want to do a book list, Kristen? Sure. And I will say we're getting lots of mail from people who are like, this isn't summer anymore, this isn't a summer reading list. Right now we're just going with any books you're reading and want to tell us about. Yeah, and maybe we'll think up something fresh and new for, for fall and winter for you guys to send us in the meantime. Uh, but until we, until we do that, uh, I have this book list from Maria who lives in Pakistan and she is reading The Tall Book, A Celebration of Life from on High by Ariane Cohen. The Devil's Game by Carlos Ruiz Zafin, and The Accidental Billionaires by Ben Mesrick. I apologize for any author mispronunciations. That's Feel why free I, to con- correct me. That's why I printed that one out, Kristen, so you could try and pronounce those authors. That's why you passed it on to me. Thank you very much. And last but not least, this is not listener mail, but I do have to get a mom stuff shout out to Toby in Chicago, a podcast fan who I randomly met. Hello, Toby. Thanks for listening. Is that it? stuff. Is that all we got? That's all we got, except for uh, if you guys want to check out what we're doing during the week, you should head over to our blog. It's called How To Stuff, and you can find that and other articles for your reading pleasure all at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. 
Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions.